This is Fully Vested, a weekly podcast where Jason Rowley and Graham Peck discuss technology and venture capital investing. This week, after an update on WeWork's ongoing IPO saga, we discuss Airbnb investing in other startups, specifically Atlas Obscura, and we explore the average returns of the venture investing industry as reviewed by David Coates from Correlation Ventures. You can learn more at fullyvested.co. Okay, Ooh, let's let's get some good Foley action here. This is me cracking some green tea. Oh yeah. Okay. What's up, Graham? Not much. How are you? Yeah, I can't really. It's been a bit of a weird week, but. Um, other than that, I can't really complain. How about um, how about yourself? How are you doing? Yeah, things are good. Good. Um, you know, spent the last uh, s- uh, since Wednesday in Wisconsin, and nice. since Thursday uh, on vacation. So that was that nice. Was good. Nice. Celebrated uh, my brother and my birthday, and that was fun. Nice. So, yeah. So you were just up no, in uh, you were no you were vacationing up in Wisconsin. Yeah, in Elkhart Lake. Oh, nice. Where there is a a vintage, uh, a four-mile-long vintage road racetrack. So Uh very different than a lot of racetracks that are basically ovals. There are elevation changes and strange shapes that might be more like a normal road Mm. than a, uh, you know, than a racetrack. Uh, Let's see. Was there racing happening on this racetrack? There was with uh, with vintage sports cars. Oh, that's baller! And in about a dozen or so different classes, uh, so you had everything from like uh, certainly pre World War II, maybe even some pre World War One vintage uh, like indie car styles uh-huh. up to um, muscle cars from the eighties and kind of everything in between. Dang, man, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, we go uh, we go every year and spend three or four days there, uh, and uh, it, it was nice. And so one day of business on the front end uh, with my dad and my brother, and then uh, uh, four days of vacation uh, with them, and three days of it with my mom, sister-in-law, and nieces was, uh, was nice. Damn, man. Let's see. <coughs> Ooh, excuse me. No worries. Do, do, oh, do. wait. I got to pull up one thing still. Sorry. Okay. I did some of my prep work on my phone, and so I don't have everything open on my computer that no. I won't be able to speak from. No worries. Yeah, so uh, Jason, what uh, what is this? Uh, Graham, this is a show called uh, <laughs> Fully Vested, and it is a uh, mostly weekly venture capital podcast, or podcast uh, focused on uh, top special topics in uh, venture capital, uh, uh, private technology companies, and uh, public technology. Well, business and, and and such related to tech and, and VC stuff. Um, uh, I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm Jason Rowley. Uh, I write things on the internet for Crunchbase News. Um, and when I'm not doing that, I also have a newsletter, which you can subscribe to at Rowley.Report. And I do a little bit of volunteer stuff with the Python Software Foundation, helping them reach out to and connect with early stage startups that use Python in new and interesting ways. Uh, Graham, who who are you? 
My name is Graham Peck. I'm your other co-host, and I am a venture partner with Midwest-based Cultivation Capital that invests in early-stage companies that are software technology, life sciences, or agricultural technology, uh, with more coming soon, I think. And... Um, I also, in addition to that, help uh, any kind of company, technology startup or otherwise, uh, build their technology team by partnering with some really phenomenal uh, development staff org resources. So, oh, fantastic! Uh, yeah. So, Graham, what um, we we got a we we have some uh, we have a couple of fun topics uh, today. But um, I think first and foremost, we should do a little bit of follow up. Uh, copyright uh, John Syracuse 2011, I think it was. Uh, Graham, we, you and I, we've been chatting a lot about uh, the uh, uh, many pleasures and sorrows of uh, WeWork's uh, death march to public markets. Uh, we learned some new information this week. What did we learn? Well, uh, so in addition to... Uh Oh boy, where where to start? Even it's been such a saga. I can uh, as, I can lead uh, off if uh, you want. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I I, I think I've got uh, at least the headline here. Sure, but uh, but it's just which is uh, which is more uh, you know uh, more important to cover. We we work continues to, in my opinion, struggle dramatically. Uh, they are you know now uh, some headlines put their potential valuation of going public in the ten to fifteen billion dollar range yep. way down from the their last valuation of $47 billion and their astronomically high hopes for a 60 to $70 billion um, IPO. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I think the other thing that's really, you know, interesting to continue to look at um, is all of the unique provisions that in particular surround Adam Newman uh, and maybe also his wife, Rebecca. Um, and uh, and so it seems that a lot of those provisions have maybe been, or some of those provisions have been walked back and made more quote unquote normal. Conventional, yeah. Yeah, although I think some uh, some folks may think that they've barely scratched the surface and not gone nearly far enough. So those are the two big things that I think have happened since yeah. our last uh, last discussion about a week ago. Mm-hmm. In fact, exactly a week ago, I think that uh, you know that that focused heavily on that. Yeah. So, so what 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 are your thoughts on those two issues or anything else you've seen? Oh yeah, no, no uh, there's you know, just kind of an update. Yeah, there's just a couple of other um, bits and bobs. Um, unpacking what was previously what you previously discussed with the um, little provisions and carve outs for um, Adam and uh, for Adam Newman and, and his spouse, I forgot. Oh, Rebecca, I apologize. Um, the, a couple of other things. One, uh, they're voting there. So they own a dis, they still have a disproportionate amount of the voting shares uh, associated with WeWork um, or rather the Wii company. Um, but I believe that those uh, voting shares, that the voting multiple was taken from, uh, Graham, am I right in saying that it was taken from a 20x multiple down to a 10x multiple? I think that's right. Relative which to class A shares? Which, 
Yeah, which interestingly enough, I think there was a provision in the original documentation, and I haven't checked if it's in the updated disclosures, but uh, which if uh, Adam or maybe Adam and Rebecca didn't donate at least $1 billion within the 10-year period, I think commenced with the date of the IPO, then that would ratchet down in exactly that same way anyway. Right. So, you know, it's interesting to think about control, and it's it's not atypical for... uh, technology company or yeah a technology company again we can debate i think intelligently whether we work fits under that moniker but it is not atypical for a technology company to have these kind of control provisions often even after they go public you know there have been similar provisions in place at facebook that keep mark zuckerberg in control um even as it's public there are similar provisions that increase the voting control of founders or executives at a number of companies like google uh i believe at least one of I mean, Uber, like Lyft, Lyft uh, Uber, you know, yeah. a, a lot of these, you know, venture back. So, I mean, it makes sense why founders want want these in place, right? Because, like, you know, if you look at the history of the venture capital business, it's it's you know, VCs have traditionally um, filled a sort of uh, uh, a governance uh, role and a risk risk management role uh, by serving on the board of directors of these companies, uh, and you know, at least. For a long time, you know, if you raised venture backing as a founder, really means that you were handing over the keys of your venture to uh, to VCs. And in a lot of ways, it still is, you know, it still is kind of like that, right? If you take money from a venture investor, you know, you're signing yourself up to a certain timeline, right? You're going to have to find uh, some sort of liquidity event for that investor in, you know, in the space of the next uh uh, depending on the timing of of your of the particular investment that you took, um, and assuming that the investor is operating with a traditional sort of ten year uh, fund life cycle, you know you have to find a liquidity event for your investor somewhere between you know seven and and or between like six and and eight and a half or nine years uh, after you take that first check from them. Right? Am I approximately correct? Yeah, I think that that's about right. I mean, you know, most funds do have, you know, typically some extension options. I'm now yeah. seeing those on funds I look at that are closer to three years rather than what had been kind of the industry standard of two. And yeah, again, it depends on where where you come into that fund life. So it could, in theory, be as much as up to 13 years. But, you know, but, but generally, the story it's going like much st- shorter than that. Yeah, right. and, and, and absolutely. You right. Know, you're that, still that, signing yourself up. You're still signing yourself up for a, for a certain exit date, but... Um, you know, the actual uh, management and and like the, the ultimate executive decisions uh, have now come back into the purview of founders because they've, you know, instituted these like super majority voting share structures, uh, you know, popularized by, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world um, to give visionary founders, you know, additional leverage over, you know, over those companies, right, to say that, okay, you know, find venture capitalists, you might be able to write big checks, you might be able to connect us to bigger and better opportunities. But I as, uh, you know, Mrs. or Mr. Founder, uh, I know what's best for my company. So uh, all due respect, uh, I will outvote you if I disagree, because that's the that's the voting that's voting structure that is instituted in our articles of incorporation, and that you investor by signing a check to me, agree to at least implicitly. Um, so yeah, like the but the question is is 
And I think a lot of investors, you know, looking at what's happened with WeWork, what's happened um, with with Uber, and what's happened with a couple of other, you know, of these bigger tech companies, I'm really, or sorry, venture-backed companies, many of which have a technology component. One of the things that I think would be most interesting to ask investors these days is, given what we now know about the about like founder risk even at IPO stage companies or public in at pub, in public companies what is your, what is your level of receptiveness to continuing to grant these sort of extraordinary voting privileges to founders do you have any thoughts on that Graham? you know i don't um but uh but yeah i mean i think that that this is an interesting bellwether to uh you know see what whether people continue to to go along with that. You know, I mean, one of the articles that I read also basically said, you know, this is a referendum on Adam Newman's, you know, personal kind of status. And while he may find himself as a Mark Zuckerberg uh, level guru in his own mind, uh, this is further proof that uh, maybe he's not quite got the status that he believes. You know, just as a comment, someone else's comment, not necessarily mine. I don't know Adam and, you know, pass no judgment on that. But uh, that was an interesting thing to, to to review, in my opinion. Yeah, and 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 there are a couple of other um, little clauses that that were changed. Um, so so now, if uh, if Adam becomes um, for whatever reason unable to lead as as CEO, and and that's not just for uh, political or business reasons, uh, you know, fact of life, you know, we're all uh, you know. Today is the youngest that we will ever be. You know, we're all we're all slowly marching toward the grave. You know, if something uh, ever happened to to Adam, um, it 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 was the case uh, in in the previous documentation that uh, Rebecca Newman would be an instrumental figure in picking his successor, uh, and and uh, that that is no longer the case. You know, it will now be a board of director led uh, initiative. Um, and and to that end, uh, other changes made to the um, to the uh, in in this you know amended S one uh, state that uh, the board can now remove uh, Mr. Newman uh, if they see fit, um, regardless of the fact that uh, he holds these uh, uh, ultra mega ultra mega super duper fancy you know quantum voting shares. So, yeah, you know, and I think that there were some other interesting things that probably should give investors or potential investors some level of comfort. You know, one of the other things that I saw, I believe that there was already provision that uh, Adam would not sell any of his shares within the first one year. I believe he now is also limited to selling 10% of his holdings in each of the second and third years. There were also a lot of people who took issue with a variety of different self-dealing things that happened, uh, you know, and that were disclosed in the company's S1. I think the the, uh, biggest one or most newsworthy being that he personally trademarked the Wii company's logo um, and licensed it to the company for $5.9 million as well as some other, you know, things that looked on the inside like they uh, were were paying him profit on certain real estate deals that they had done. And... um, and, you know, it seems that he's cleaned up a lot of that stuff and I believe has pledged to return the $5.9 million as well as any profits he had made personally from any real estate transactions. 
Yeah, but he did. Uh, he still does not uh, eliminate the fact that he uh, cashed out like seven hundred million dollars <laughs> or something like that um, as part of a secondary market transaction before the IPO. So yeah, he. I mean, he still made out like. Uh, well, I mean, a guy's got to eat. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, as as they say, nobody can uh, stop you from making your first seven hundred million. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that a popular phrase? I guess I I'm not familiar fr- with that I think one. the phrase is, uh, nobody can stop you from wanting to make your first million. Oh, like that. got it. Got right. it. But so, because- Jason, do you think that these provisions <laughs> have gone far enough and, and made should make investors uh, you know, comfortable uh, looking at WeWork's IPO? I don't know. Um, no. Uh, I mean, so there's, there's... Here's the thing. Apart from all of the... Apart from all the stuff that's going on with the uh, with the leadership mechanics in general, that has not really gone any way toward uh, ameliorating the massive financial uh, challenges that the company will face. You know, in terms of becoming a uh, a standalone, you know, into like independently operating business that doesn't need constant infusions of outside capital. Um, you know, so. I, for for the sake of WeWork employees, for the sake of the people that you know rely on on WeWork's um, office infrastructure, um, you know, I guess for the sake of of WeWork's investors too, because you know, like losing money sucks, and I don't want, I don't wish that on anybody necessarily. Um, you know, I I hope that they're successful, but in their IPO, but that's going to come with. A cup, you know, a, a long, long, long road ahead before you know the bigger structural problems within their business is is actually resolved. Um, I know that there's uh, that they're on the hook for. Um, well, they have a lot of like rental liabilities themselves. Uh, there's uh, a, there's in the in the IPO if they rate what is it, Graham? If they raise something like three billion dollars ca- uh, cash in their IPO. They get uh, access to another, you know, three or six billion dollars as a line of credit or six. something like six. Yeah, right? but if if they unlock three billion dollars uh, through a market offering, then uh, and maybe meet certain other provisions, but then they're able to unlock a six billion dollar credit facility. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, their annualized losses now being what somewhere in the range of about three billion dollars. I think they see that as an extension of runway For three uh, as well years. as. Yeah, well, at their current burn rate, but they also talk about wanting to continue their growth trajectory, which likely, uh, given that they've never made money thus far, um, and that growth trajectory would, for anyone would probably mean increasing burn. Obviously, it might reduce slightly. But yeah, I think they see that as a necessary runway extension to get access to about $9 billion in capital. Yeah, totally. Um, So like, I mean, and also there's the issue of of if they don't go public, you know, there's uh, stock options and all the rest that are, you know, employee stock options and all the rest that are set to expire at a certain point in time. Like, like it's not it's a pretty messy situation, um, financially speaking. So, you know, and and I'm also not in the business of, uh, you know, well, and Graham, for the record, you aren't in the business either of giving financial advice. So, um uh, you know, I'm not going to say whether or not to buy into WeWork. I'm just going to say that uh, there are there's a lot of room for skepticism about its long term viability as a business uh, and and its unique government or, or governance uh, structure uh, 
uh, does not necessarily contribute to uh, my confidence in their uh, long-term viability um, as as a business. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, and Jason touched on this, but please talk to your financial, legal, and uh, tax or accountant kind of advisors before making any investment decisions. And your spouses, uh, romantic partners, uh, uh, a- a- children, absolutely. you know, whatever. But all of that being said, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not us suggesting to buy it or not buy it. It's just uh, continuing uh, the the next chapter of the saga, you know. And and when we last uh, covered this. Uh, it was interesting because they were looking at such a massive down valuation and that was going to be in the 20 to $30 billion range. And now that number has dropped yet again. And I think that they believe that they're realistically going to be lucky to end up in the 10 to $15 billion valuation. So, you know, taking it on the chin yet again from a valuation perspective. But, you know, I mean, I think uh, this being maybe a little longer than we intended. Oh, on yeah, this, no, we, we've like, gone well in a follow-up. But, uh, but yeah, we will, uh, we will continue to uh, cover the various machinations, and no doubt there will be many, many more of them over the coming weeks and months as we see uh, WeWork uh, work to list themselves now, uh, I believe, on the NASDAQ market they've chosen. So. Yep. So there's a, there's a, you know, Graham, there's a couple of other things that we get to talk about. One is, uh, and I think it, it might be good to talk about Airbnb because Airbnb is, is, is of a, it's of this sort of same generation of quote unquote sharing economy companies, right? You know, it was founded, uh, I think Airbnb was founded in 2009, uh, but people are welcome to correct me if they would like. Uh, they had a very interesting origin story. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're now valued, uh, in the tens of billions of dollars range. And they're one of the companies that, um, people are looking forward to, um, possibly going public, uh, in 2000, I mean, maybe in 2019 might be a little bit of a stretch at this point, given the fact that it's already, uh, almost the middle of September or actually dead in the middle of September, um, but you know that they could be going public soon, and uh, they're very like Airbnb is a is a very 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 different beast from um, Uber and WeWork. Um, again, two companies we've talked a whole lot about. Uh, in that, first and foremost, Airbnb is a profitable business, um, and uh, it's been profitable for uh, at least a year, um, maybe more. I forget exactly when it achieved profitability, but um, it's also of uh, it's also a little bit different. In that uh, it's been very active uh, itself, even though it's raised you know billions of dollars, uh, it has also been a uh, investor into other startups, and so it's a phenomenon of like you know the venture backed becomes the venture backer. And uh, I recently wrote about uh, this phenomenon specifically regarding Airbnb for uh, Crunchbase News, looking at their. Uh, leadership of a $20 million Series B round raised by uh, Atlas Obscura, which, Graham, are you familiar with Atlas Obscura, or do you want me to give you the, the one-line pitch? Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I wasn't until uh, reading your article, so go ahead. Isn't it? It's a neat little... Okay, it's so a cool business. It's I'd a neat little to, business. Uh, I'd love to check out some more stuff on them and possibly go on one of their trips. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so uh, Atlas Obscura, it started as a... 
I th- I remember kind of when it around the time it launched, it started as as I think it was just like a regular old WordPress site with a network of contributors, um, basically writing up uh, weird and wonderful and wacky and sometimes like really creepy, uh, but like definitely off the beaten path uh, places in cities and you know locales around the world, uh, and so this is not your typical. Uh, travel, you know, sort of website where it's saying, oh, go to, you know, this XYZ very fancy place in Paris that everybody recognizes. It's like, oh, go down to like this one particular part of the, you know, the Paris catacombs if you want to see like the most, (laughs) the most skulls or, or whatever. And that might be a bad or slightly morbid example, but, um, but it started as, as this blog, you know, of, of these weird, wacky places and it uh, slowly morphed into, uh, you know, a series of, uh, you know, events slash like curated local experiences run by, um, you know, locals who have particular knowledge about a, a certain, you know, part of a city or a certain history or a certain skill or technique. And then they've also expanded into uh, doing uh, guided trips, oftentimes with like food type themes, but you know, there's others with like, uh, ecotourism or, or more volunteer, uh, uh, driven components to them. And, uh, this has been a very long and rambling way of saying that, that, um, Airbnb has had a very interesting strategy with its, uh, corporate investments, uh, all done, it seems in the interest in like the strategic interest of expanding, the network of of unique inventory that it has on its site um and that either comes from you know uh like home share operators that are listing exclusively on Airbnb or have exclusive certification through like Airbnb Plus or Airbnb Lux or something like that um but also then exclusive channel partnerships with organizations like Atlas Obscura to cross list uh, their inventory, in the case of Atlas Obscura, its trips um, and a couple of its local, uh, you know, curated uh, events or local experiences. Um, and I just found that to be very, very interesting um, and and definitely of a piece that's not just unique to Airbnb, but something that, that a lot of these bigger, um, you know, unicorn slash decacorn or, you know, the, these really big private tech companies have been have been doing and i i thought that was really interesting and i really wanted to talk about it here today yeah you know i mean i think uh, obviously travel's a uh, travel's a great market and a big market and growing market that we've seen in technology and investment um you know and i think that that's a really cool a really cool thing that they're doing you know i know one of the the things that you and I talked about in in general on one of our very earliest kind of pre-launch uh, test episodes um, was that that there are that there are more companies, big and small, that are startups themselves, um, maybe profitable, but that are startups themselves that are investing in their own ecosystems or even doing acquisitions. And I think that that's a really cool thing. Um, 
to see, you know, an Airbnb lead uh, or participate in so many other travel company, you know, investments. I think that one of the things that they, uh, you know, talked about in some of the information that I reviewed was, uh, you know, was that they see this as kind of furthering, uh, furthering their own mission. And it's really cool to see a company that's, that becomes that committed to their mission that uh, that they're tying other people on to that kind of ship or or you know goal uh even in some ways that that may be competitive yeah and so again airbnb is not unique here uh so i think the the probably the best example of of a company from this most recent batch of of like you know high flying uh really you know highly valued uh uh well, now no longer pri- uh, private, but current because it's now public is Slack. Uh, so Slack made uh, dozens of investments through uh, both itself, like directly as Slack, but it also set up a Slack fund, uh, and so that was a um, pre seed and seed stage, uh, you know, venture capital investment group. Uh, operated by Slack. I don't know how big their fund size was or what the exact structure of all of its um, investments were, but it made equity investments in dozens of really early stage startups that um, that somehow tied their way back to the Slack ecosystem, either because they themselves were building Slack bots or they were building, um, you know, tools for the new distributed uh, workforce economy, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I found, I just, I find that to be really interesting. Uh, and then, you know, it dovetails really nicely with, uh, with all of the M and A that a lot of startups have done, um, prior to going public. And I think one of the most, uh, uh, prolific acquirers before its IPO was Dropbox. Um, and if you look at a lot of Dropbox's features today on the enterprise side, uh, or, or and even on their consumer-facing side, a lot of those started as independent startups that Dropbox rolled into itself over time, and uh, and so yeah, again, I I think this is a it's a new phenomenon based on my understand. I mean, I I haven't heard of like it's not like Google acquired like a dozen companies before it went public. Right. Or it's not like Facebook acquire or invested in two dozen companies before it went public. Uh, this is a relatively new phenomenon enabled by large quantities of late stage capital. And uh, and and it's it's an interesting one. And it and and yeah. So, Graham, do you have any if if you had a portfolio company that was that was being offered capital from uh, a uh, a new corporate investor, right? So it's not like they're taking money from Coca-Cola or whatever. But, you know, if if Airbnb or, or, or a company like Airbnb of that generation came to one of your portfolio companies, what would be the stuff that you would that would be going through your head as a as an investor um, advising your your portfolio companies? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that I would dig into or that our team would dig into in a big way would be what the benefit would be of that. You know, and I think in this case, using using this, you know, obviously uh, Airbnb cross-listing Alice Obscura's travel uh, opportunities, uh, you know, is a big, is a, probably a big win for them when you can get access to, uh, you know, to the marketplace that, uh, you know, that is Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, one of the things that we would look at first and foremost is what, if any, strategic advantages there of taking that investor on? What do what do they know about the industry or marketplace that's available that we or the, our startup doesn't yet know? And what could be the benefit of that long term? Obviously, in this case, again, I think that there's huge potential benefit for them to obtain customers. But I'd be shocked if there's not tons of other you know benef- ancillary benefits that come from just partnering with a company that has that scale. Um, you know, I mean, one would hope that Atlas Obscura could get access to, uh, you know, just to advice, maybe board or other level uh, mentorship for their executive team uh, from similar, uh, you know, similar folks over at Airbnb. So I think that that would be the first and, and, and biggest thing we would look at. Obviously, we would also take a look at, is there any conflict or is there any obvious reason why not to do this? Um, but, you know, obviously we would be far and away and more excited for other industry partners to to join with the startups we invest in, uh, because generally that probably gives them a huge leg up on right. their additional competition. Right. And, you know, a growing pie is better for every, you know, is better for everybody. Um, so like raising tide raises all boats. Exactly right. So I guess my question here would be, and this was not disclosed in the in the um, in the press release. I didn't write about it because I didn't have any information about this, but um, surely, you know, well, maybe not surely, but I'm I'd be curious to know whether there's uh, in addition to Airbnb's investment, whether or not there was some sort of revenue sharing component to this arrangement as well. E.g., um, I, I'm wondering if, for example, you know, Airbnb is is capturing a percentage of the fees on uh, on trips that it facilitates through its platform. Um, E.g., I'm wondering if, if there's any sort of double dipping involved, so to speak, where not only does Airbnb benefit from the uh, the increased value of of its equity stake in a company that is being able to grow because of its exposure on you know on Airbnb's platform, but whether Airbnb is also capturing a little bit of the upside you know on its own um, as part of the deal as well. But again, I, I that wouldn't that to me is not a giant red would not be it, it would be a small red flag, but not a giant red flag. Yeah, and and not necessarily even a red flag, in my opinion, uh, possibly only a yellow flag, as long as it's all disclosed and as long as it's clear, you know, uh, what's happening and who's getting what for what benefit. Uh, You know, I mean, it's very normal to structure rev share type agreements or things of that nature. And so I think, uh, you know, again, as long as all of that sees the light of day, at least to the investors, knowledge and satisfaction, then I wouldn't necessarily see that uh, as as a a cause for concern at all. Again, as long as we wrapped our heads around it and we're sure that we weren't going to somehow get, uh, or our portfolio company in this case, wasn't going to somehow get backwards on it, 
then uh, then I think it'd be phenomenal uh, if if uh, a giant in an industry like that was going to bring your small startup so much more business. Oh yeah, uh, because as is potentially the case. Well, now, right. obviously, with a company like Atlas Obscura that you know is also trying to plan relatively small trips of small groups of people and relatively curated experiences, you also have to be careful because some things like that may not scale, and you don't want to probably break the culture. Of of being on a trip with uh, 10 or 12 other people by putting 100 people in that group and trying to book every seat in a restaurant for one night because you've probably then lost the, uh, you know, unique feel that that restaurant originally had. But all of that aside, in this specific case, if there's a business that doesn't have any huge concerns of how it scales, uh, and it can scale nearly infinitely uh, through software or whatever kind of leverage or platforms you know that are out there, then uh, bring on a large strategic partner that's going to bring in a ton of additional business. In yeah, my opinion, and, and actually, Graham, I want to amend. I want to amend my my prior statement. I I, I take it back. I it would not necessarily be a red flag. Um. Speaking sort of as a journalisty type sort of person, this would be this sort of like potential conflict of interest, you know that 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 you know me journalist brain would love to 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 make some hay about. But in retrospect, if if there is a revenue sharing component, so like now taking off journalist hat and putting on uh, you know venture strategist type hat, uh, it it would make sense. For you to be excited, for you as an investor or for you as a founder of a company, um, uh, engaging with uh, you know one of these giant uh, marketplace platforms for a revenue sharing deal, because if you bring revenue to that bigger platform, the more likely it is that platform is is likely to maintain that relationship with you over time, and you know as long as everybody's strategically aligned and everybody keeps making money um, uh, in a way that's you know satisfactory to everybody. You know that's uh, that's a win on on all sides of the table. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's huge opportunity for this to be mutually beneficial, and I, there's no doubt in my mind that that would that that would be the case or could be the case. Right. So we would encourage any of our companies to explore strategic partnerships, including with investment. Now, one of the other things that I think is interesting is often. Um, often you don't want, uh, either investors or founders might not want that strategic uh, company to lead the round for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, conflict of interest, you know, kind of chief among them. And it may be best to have that uh, quote unquote strategic investor riding on someone else's terms. Um, and, you know, and that's obviously not the case here. I think in this case, it was specifically disclosed that Airbnb led this round and that they've done that in many of the other cases that your article pointed out. And, and I guess that that's fine. Uh, again, as long as everyone's kind of going to, into everything with uh, eyes wide open. Yep. But all all of that being said, uh, we often see when strategics participate in rounds that by often our or is in many cases, even the strategics point of view, they may not want to be leading. Some of them also may not be as good at coming up with what are the traditional or standard terms from a venture perspective as well. Uh, you know, so some of them may not want to lead simply because they're not used to pricing startups. They're used to pricing their company. That's just a kind of secondary reason, though. Yeah, I mean, um, 
not knowing exactly how this deal with between Airbnb and Atlas Obscura took took shape, um, you know, it's it's really hard to say. But now this is me purely speculating here. One could imagine a situation where, uh, and again, this is strictly hypothetical. I don't have any inside information about how the you know about how the deal went down. This is just totally back of the envelope uh, spitballing here. But one could easily imagine a situation where. Um, you know, folks from Atlas Obscura went to Airbnb and said, Hey, you know, we have these, uh, trips or, you know, these events, uh, and you guys, uh, you Airbnb have this, uh, listing slash marketplace platform, yada, yada. We would love to work out some sort of a deal. Uh, and then, you know, one thing leads to another. And then there's a discussion of like, Oh yeah, well, we Atlas Obscura, we're going to go out and raise money at some point. And then, you know, Airbnb says, oh, well, you know, we, we got all this, <laughs> we got all this money that, that, that's uh, lying around and, and, and could help both of our companies grow in tandem. Um, you know, I, I, I could see a situation like that happening. Now, that's not exact. I'm not saying that's what happened, but given the fact that there weren't many other, um, uh, big name like marquee type investors involved in this particular deal, um, that, you know, it's, it's, there's a potential for, for some arrangement like that, you know, having occurred and, and resulting in this sort of a deal. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that I find, uh, you know, interesting kind of going back to some of your, some of the other point, um, is that, uh, you know, that Airbnb has also been very acquisitive in addition oh, yeah. to being, uh, you know, an investor, uh, you know, uh, kind of most notably, I think buying uh, hotel, hotel tonight. tonight for a reported over $400 million. Uh, but that that's just one of about 20 or maybe even it was two dozen. Um, yeah, it's 21. You know, according it, to, according to Crunchbase data, it's, it's 21 uh uh Airbnb has made uh, 21 known acquisitions of of startups uh since you know at least uh, 2011 Wow. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's also interesting that that company, obviously profitable and and quite large, but uh, but that they are acquisitive in addition to making investments in other people in their industry. And I think that that's that's great. And you know, again, kind of speaks to your point of that that often startups today uh, have so much funding that they're able to fold other companies in that have you know benefit to them and their end users or customers. And I think that that's a great thing. Thing, because that can also be of huge benefit to those small startups being plugged into such a large platform, uh, you know, again, whether through investment or or acquisition. Yeah, but you are sort of to play devil's advocate here, though, you are sort if you're a startup, you are if you're like hitching your Apple wagon to somebody else's star, like and that star begins to fade. Uh, you're in trouble. <laughs> so you have to, so you have to make sure that, that, you know, the big, you know, the big company that's offering you money, um, is, is also poised to be, uh, successful in the long run. Because if you make the wrong, if you as a founder, you know, uh, make the wrong move, uh, partnership wise, uh, you know, you could end up losing out on, uh, on, on opportunities in the future. Um, especially if, uh, like term, you know, exclusivity or other terms were, were part of that partnership deal. So, um, 
speaking of uh, making and losing money, uh, Graham, do you, was there anything else about uh, Airbnb and Atlas Obscura, or do you want to talk about um, the last topic of this uh, of this little podcast? No, I think it'd be great to move on. Uh, you know, good luck to Atlas Obscura, and again, someday I'd love to uh, check out one of their trips. And I hope that their partnership uh, in investment from Airbnb uh, goes very well for for both parties. Um, I, I hope, assume that it will. Yeah, I'm, and I will continue uh, browsing around Atlas Obscura for uh, weird, weird crap to do in, in Chicago and uh, all the other places I get to visit. So, yeah. Just as a uh, call out to our hometown, Jason's uh, Jason's article actually uh, is is almost like a mini Atlas Obscura and points out several really cool things that people should check out if you I, find I yourself with an back. afternoon to uh, yeah. to kill in Chicago. Many I, I, of which I haven't even done, having now lived here for six years. By the way, I was linking. Well, I I used it as an opportunity to link back to some of my favorite places that I first read about on Atlas Obscura. So, yeah, all the links in the article to the other stuff like the um, so uh, uh, Chicago is home to a, the International Museum of Surgical Science, which is a uh, delightful and horrifying museum to visit. <laughs> there's uh, it's home to the uh, the busy beaver button company. Uh, there's uh, down down on the uh, far further south side is Calumet Fisheries. All these places uh, I first read about uh, on Atlas Obscura, and it was it was very neat to um, uh, to check those out and be able to uh, share those back with uh, uh, mostly a, a East and West Coast audience who uh, who reads the stuff that we publish on Crunchbase News. So they, I'm glad you liked it, Graham. Yeah, it was very cool. All right, so so VCs they lose money. Many- people make money as it might seem and often a lot less on a multiple basis again than it might seem Mm. in the venture investing world exactly it's not just uh, uh, it's not just twitter uh it's not just twitter and uh and uh and and vests and fancy parties at the rosewood sand hill is it graham uh no, well certainly not the way that I uh, have participated in the industry thus far, having not, not never yet. been to San Francisco myself yet. Oh b- boy, Graham, we're we're gonna get you to San Francisco. We'll we'll wear some. We'll uh we'll be in full. We'll, well, Graham, we'll be fully vested. We'll uh we'll, yeah. we'll walk down San Hill. Fully Road. vested re- regalia, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, friends, here's what we're talking about. We are talking about an article. Uh, by a gentleman named David Coates, who was the founder and uh, managing partner, uh, not sorry, not was, is the founder and managing partner of Correlation Ventures, uh, a uh, Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Uh, The article that we are talking about is titled Venture Capital M-Dash. No, we're not normal. Uh, Graham, is this uh, breaking news to you that uh, VCs are not normal? No, it's not. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, what I've, else is uh, you know? Per, I've, I've personally lived a life uh, as a venture capitalist for a little while, but uh, I've been not normal for long before that. So, well, no, and I, I only cover the space, but uh, but but you know, I'm not normal. So uh, <laughs> none of the people I cover are normal either. Oh, well, well, and all joking aside, yes. I think it's interesting to think about that. Uh, you know, I mean. Anyone who's starting a startup probably has to have some different view of the world, right? Assuming yeah. you're not talking about, oh yeah, I just started my own company, but it happens to be in a space that that you know we all know a lot about, like oh, I'm going to start up, you know, a 
cleaning company or something, no offense to the cleaning industry, but if you're starting a startup whose vision is to go out and change the world in some way, shape, or form, then uh, you got to be a little nuts, and yeah. somebody else is going to put their hard-earned after-tax money into that company, uh, that person probably has to be a little bit nuts too, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there, there's certainly a lot of interesting uh, personalities in both the startup uh, founder and uh, and uh, venture capital space that that I've come into contact with in the oh, in yeah. the eight or so years I've been working in that industry. Oh yeah. Well, so this was a very short. This is a relatively short read. Um, uh, Medium says it's a four minute read. There were a couple of key points. So this is not necessarily as much a commentary on the. Um, on the, the, the personality types uh, of, of founders and, and investors. This was more a, a commentary on the sort of abnormal or, or skewed return profile of the venture industry. So the main, the main sort of like highlight from this piece uh, was that, so I'm going to just sort of read it verbatim, <clears throat> about 51, about half, 51%, of all the capital invested into venture-funded companies exiting over the last decade lost money, while less than 4% generated a 10x or greater return multiple. When calculated as a percent of financings rather than by dollars, the distribution is even more skewed. Almost two-thirds of financing lost money for investors. And Graham, uh, first off, I would love to hear your take on that. Um, but there's a, there's a twist that I would like to bring up. So you can either, do you have thoughts first or do you want me to introduce my twist first? Uh, well, I'll just give kind of a gut reaction, which is, ouch, uh, right. that's, that, that's, that's scary. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, I'm fortunate enough to work with a really smart group of people. Um, and you know, we have certainly returned you know, some capital, um, details, unfortunately I can't disclose, no, okay. but boy, doing better uh, than most there, Graham. It's, uh, well, <laughs> you, that uh, you've returned but, to any capital is doing better than most. Yeah. Yeah. That's a scary, uh, thing. And obviously this is talking about venture deals, not venture funds, but you know, you can extrapolate that, uh, you know, further. And the really scary thing that I would, I guess, add as a, you know, an additional, uh, twist on my end is that I think that there's probably an under-reporting in companies that have failed. Oh, totally. My gut would tell totally. me. Totally. Oh my God. Because they're like in these data, in these big data. All right. Sorry, Graham, not to, uh, not to, not to interrupt or, uh, or, or Jason's playing over you, but, um, uh, so this is a thing that, that we, that I sort of have, and I'll use the word struggle in a very non-ironic sense. Like it's a, it's a genuine struggle. The so, like I said, I'm I do stuff for Crunchbase News primarily around you know data analysis stuff. This is my biggest struggle: is figuring out like, okay, to what extent is this ground truth versus to what extent is is this data set biased by any one of the number of factors that could bias a data set? Is it you know, is there uh, a positivity bias? Because again, people don't like to report failure as often as they like to report success. Is there a uh, geographic sampling bias? Is there a, uh, you know, a temporal sampling bias? Is there, how do you, how well do we know about the, the delays in 
between um, like actually signing a check versus having it get reported if it gets reported at all. What percentage of deals are reported versus under? These are so many of these big questions um, that that are really hard to answer. I know that this uh, that the Correlation Ventures for its analysis sourced its uh, its information from Dow, Dow Jones Venture Source, and I don't remember exactly how that data is structured. But the here was my twist. The question that I have is is um, is that is are they doing it based is how these numbers were calculated? Because I can easily understand a situation where you can look at a company's valuation uh it's like terminal valuation and and do some like back of the envelope math and say well nobody really made you know money on this deal because you know it's multiple on invested capital is you know uh not great right it's like you know 1x or 2x or whatever um or less than 1x right you know and and everybody did actually you know lose money um, but the thing that I would be interested in is, is rather than looking at this at a, at a, at a deal by deal, I'm sorry, looking at it at a company by company basis, I'm wondering if they did this on a deal by deal basis. And the reason why I think that's interesting is because if we take an, if we take an example, like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, let's pick on Uber cause we spent way too much time picking on WeWork, you know, lately, but like, um, if you look at a company like Uber, uh, you know, and and its very earliest investors, you know, even a even a firm like you know Benchmark, like they bought in super super early into uh, into Uber's um, you know into Uber's uh, financing rounds, and accordingly, like given the valuation that Benchmark, just as an example, bought into Uber, like even if Uber went public at a valuation less than its last private market valuation. Um, you know, they're still up, you know, in insane multiple relative to, uh, you know, relative to say the SoftBank Vision Fund, which, you know, invested billions of dollars at a 60 or $70 billion valuation, whatever, you know, wherever they, they bought into Uber at. Um, and, and so this is where things get a little squirrely is, is I don't know how this was done. And I'm really curious to know. Um, I'm not saying I could do it better, but uh, that's an extra layer of nuance that that was that unfortunately was not captured in this particular analysis that I would love to know more about. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure that there's a ton. Anytime you're working with any set of numbers this large, I'm sure there's outliers and things that adjust the the data set and things that kind of mess with it in in kind of all directions, right? You know, so we'll we'll include a uh, link to this article in the show yeah. notes. But uh, you know, the the data indicates that there was 20.5 billion dollars invested and 27,878, almost 28,000 financing transactions into those companies that either exited uh, through acquisition or IPO or went out of business between 2009 and 2018. And again, as Jason said, that's from the Dow Jones Venture Source uh, and other primary and secondary sources is what the article claims the source of their data is. Mm-hmm. Um, so with a number set that big, uh, you know, I'm sure that you've got things that are incorrectly reported uh, kind of both directions, but... Um, I guess in one way, shape, or form, it, it 
paints a relatively bleak outlook of venture investing. But to your point, there are all kinds of things that are probably remain private, even if transaction values uh, end up being public. So there are a lot of things, protections that investors could put in place that could make their uh, return on invested capital higher than uh, than it would seem if you just look at you know just the uh, raw numbers gross sale value and uh, you know uh, total e- equity, equity funding pounds invested exactly yeah. and, and dollars um, as, you know and to your point the the other uh, certainly wrinkle is is it's a big deal when you come in and what those eventual valuations are because right. even in even in not not to pick on we work just to point one. Oh no, last we can thing. pick on we work all we back want. To, back to we work. Um, you know, there may be investors who still end up making money even if it's at a ten billion dollar valuation. Obviously, oh, sure. those investors would have had to have been in quite a long time ago, and you know, it seems inevitable at this point that they're going to have a substantial down round uh, since their you know last valuation was forty seven billion dollars, but. You know, there could be investors, even if it comes out of the gate at the lowest IPO threshold projected today at around 10 billion, maybe 15 billion. Uh, there could still be investors who make substantial cap, you know, sub- substantial return on that. So I think the answer is one transaction. In some cases, one exit transaction could actually produce uh, return results across this spectrum and, uh, you know, be under one for some and over 20 for others. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, this is a, um, right. So in in other words, like there's a lot of like internal dynamics within individual funding rounds and then on a company's cap table that, that affects whether or not and which investors are able to extract some gains, you know, from, from around, right? Because, you know, it might even be the case. uh, uh, I'm sure we can invent a scenario where, you know, two investors who invested roughly the same amount initially uh, at uh, seed, you know, at seed round, um, uh, pursued slightly different strategies with their follow-on funding or whatever, and and generate you know radically different return profiles for themselves uh, by the time the company actually finds an exit, right? So, like, you know, it's just uh, it's just extra, you know, testament to. Um, a, a, I guess an ongoing theme of uh, of fully vested so far, which is uh, do all your diligence, uh, model out your uh, numbers well, and uh, and then invest with uh, with full conviction or or not at all. Yeah, and investing in early stage startups is inherently a risky business. I mean, one of our partners the other day, as we were uh, discussing making investments, said, "Hey, guys, just as a reminder, we we are uh, we are in the risk business here." So, you know, I mean, it it is an inherently risky business when you're investing in early stage companies that want to change the way that the world works, uh, regardless of how kind of aggressive you are on that kind of uh, change the world spectrum. So. You know, the venture industry is a inherently risky business. And in a lot of ways, again, details and digging into the numbers and methods aside, uh, this article would certainly bear that out in that half of, uh, you know, half of what money by investment dollars and to almost two thirds by investment transaction size, uh, you know, return less than their invested capital. And that's, yeah, but that's, that's a also, scary stat, but, right? you know, you, you kind of know that going in and you hope you work with smart people and great founders and you know, you're investing in, 
if you know you're investing in good people, then uh, then maybe let's uh, take a chance and hopefully get a couple of returns uh, in the higher category. Right. And I also would advise, you know, and, and this article makes no uh, bones about that there's a huge advantage of having a portfolio of investments because having more than one different investment or, you know, a, a lot of different at-bats to use the baseball analogy certainly increases your likelihood that you get one or two that are in those higher exit category. And that can make up for a whole bunch of, uh, you know, lower return or no return investment. Investments. Totally. Um, it would last- be interesting to know, just as one final uh, you know, uh, aside, it would be interesting to know um, how many had zero return out of that. You know, the lowest category oh. is only less than one. It would be interesting to know what percentage have zero return. Probably even harder to determine right. by the numbers, but it would be interesting to know that, in my opinion. Right. So that's a thing that I wanted to bring up, and this is not a this is not a a critique of of uh, Mr. Coates because I write a lot of stuff like this too, where it's where I'm where you're able to use data to confirm uh, or at least bear out with numbers stuff that used to be only you know intuited, right? Like. The thing that I take away from this piece by Mr. Coates uh, and whichever associates or VPs or whoever else or analysts uh, contributed to the actual um, analysis of this is that like is that this doesn't necessarily say anything brand new or it's not some or or something that that wasn't already known at least in the abstract because you know. There's a, you know, it goes back to, you know, like the Peter Thiel, like zero to one book, right? Where, where, you know, he made a case, uh, uh, I forget how well it was borne out with actual numbers, but, you know, made the case that, that the venture capital industry is, is one that sort of operates on a power law, right? Where, you know, 10% of the, you know, uh, deals, you know, uh, generate 90% of the, of the returns, um, you know, this doesn't necessarily surprise me that, you know, so many of the deals generate, uh, you know, such a lackluster, you know, such a lackluster return profile. Um, but, you know. Yeah, I think unfortunately that's true. You know, but I mean, that being said, you know, it's it's so it's stuff that that has kind of already been known. But. Um, what I thought was the most interesting chart here was that last one where it shows the percentage of invested dollars generating uh, 10x plus return uh, multiples versus the industry's mean realized gross multiple, which is very a very complicated and weird, uh, like linguistically weird way of framing this. But um, but it basically suggests that, or they conclude, right? You know, one implication of Mr. Coates quoting from the article. One implication we see from these statistics for VCs, entrepreneurs, and limited partners is that it is rational for many VCs to have a swing for the fences strategy where we invest in opportunities that have the potential to be breakout winners and avoid those where the outcome is capped from the outset. So, Right. Like swing for the fence. And I definitely think that that's true as a professional in that industry. I mean, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who'd be thrilled to go out and make stable, safe returns um, at 
at or above market rates. And that's just not the game that the venture capital uh, industry and investors are playing. Uh, they're trying to bet for bigger returns, but obviously know they're taking more risk. Right. I mean, yeah, and, and, and said more simply, I think what you're distilling down said maybe even more simply is, yeah, I mean, as risk increases, so does reward. But that's in a much smaller uh, subset of uh, you know, of deals. And you're exactly right that I think a lot of people could intuit this. Uh, and it's interesting to now, and I'm sure you've got a ton of additional thoughts as a data journalist, but it's interesting now to look at it from a pure numbers and data perspective. And that bears out the intuition that, yeah, this is a uh, risky business and a small percentage of the deals uh, return an extreme multiple of uh, of what was invested in them. Well, uh, you know, Graham, I think uh, I think that might be a good place to uh, to wrap it up. We've already been going for a little bit. Uh, do you have any other uh, last thoughts on uh, on on either you know Mr. Coates's essay or uh, or what we discussed about uh, Airbnb or WeWork? No, I think that uh, that's a good place to leave it. I think this is a good place to wrap it up. So, uh, is this no longer the show? I don't think this is the longer the sh- you know what i mean this is no longer the sh- <laughs> oh man what a great way to close oh yeah oh uh, boy all right 